Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you turn there, I'd just like to reiterate the invitation that Ben gave earlier to join us tonight. Camp Good News is we have our, our monthly Sunday evening service. We'll be, we'll be discussing uh, sin and, and uh, Genesis chapter 3. And if, uh, if you'd please join Josh in standing up this morning and as, we, as we look at God's Word in 2 Timothy. Josh was way ahead of the game there. I appreciate the enthusiasm. Please join Josh and me as we read God's Word together in 2 Timothy chapter 3, honor of God and, and His Word. Beginning in uh, verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Paul writes this to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You may be seated. Let me pray that we would continue to worship God this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word that, that does enable us to live godly lives. And, and we pray this morning that your word would be active in our lives, that you would use your Holy Spirit to, to, to tear us asunder where our soul needs to be quickened to repentance, and we pray that you would give us great understanding of the truths in your word, and we pray that you would cause us to be humble and to tremble before it. Help me to speak clearly, help my heart to be soft as well, and I pray that we would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. It was sometime in the spring, in the year 1517, that a priest named John Tetzel made his way into a German city named Jorburg. As Tetzel approached the city, if things happened according to his custom, what would happen is this, as he approached Jorburg, uh, dignitaries from the town came out to meet him and to be a part of his procession. And this priest's procession would consist of, of himself, of Tetzel, his companions, the dignitaries of the city, there would be a large papal cross that went before them. There would be a a velvet cushion upon which sat a letter from the Pope himself. And this procession would make its way into the city, into the market square, and, and the cross would be firmly planted into the ground, and Tetzel would begin to give his sermon. Say something like this, He would say, God and St. Peter call you to listen. Consider the salvation of your souls, the salvation of the souls of your loved ones who have departed. Listen to the voice of your dear dead relatives and friends who are beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us, we are in dire torment. Will you delay our promised glory? And then he would close with a statement like this. Tetz would say, Remember that you are able to release them for as soon as your coin in the coffer clings, the soul from pur- purgatory springs. 
what this priest, John Tetzel, was doing was selling indulgences. Indulgences were declarations by the, the Pope himself that a person's sins had been forgiven. And so as Tetzel went into this, the city of Jorburg, he began to sell these indulgences, these scraps of paper upon which were written, full forgiveness of sins. And Tetzel was an incredibly effective salesperson for these indulgences, and people began to buy them. There was a nearby city, the city of Wittenberg. And in the city of Wittenberg, there was a young monk who was also a professor at the University of Wittenberg named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther saw people coming into Wittenberg with these scraps of paper, these indulgences, and and he saw the confidence and the trust that they placed upon these papers. And Luther himself had been wrestling with this issue of God's righteousness and how a person obtains God's righteousness. He was a professor of biblical theology. He had been teaching through the book of Romans, and he became convinced that righteousness, the righteousness that we so desperately need, can only be gained through faith in Jesus Christ. He was deeply concerned and troubled by the confidence that these people placed upon these scraps of paper. And so he wrote a letter to the archbishop expressing his concern. And then he wrote down 95 arguments or 95 theses concerning this issue of indulgences. And he took these 95 theses and on October 31st, 1517, 492 years ago yesterday, he took these papers and he nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel to start a discussion. He succeeded. As people became aware of what he was teaching, there was, there was, there was shock among those in the church. Now, Luther considered himself a very loyal son of the church. He, he loved the church, and he was convinced that as he brought to, a, to the attention of the authorities in the church what was going on, they would be as shocked as he was. But that was not the case. Luther was called on to defend his writings and his arguments, and he did so. At one point, he wrote this. He wrote, or asserted, he said, I assert that a, a council, a church council, has sometimes erred. A church councils have even contradicted one another. And then he said this shocking statement. A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without scripture. In fact, he said, neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. They must come from scripture. For the sake of scripture, we should reject pope and council. Shocking. And Luther was called to the city of Worms in 1521 and was called upon at the the, the meeting, the, the Diet of Worms, to defend what he had written. And you can imagine the fear that Luther had as he appeared before the emperor. He knew that his very life could be at stake here. And it was not to be a debate. There was not to be discussion. What they did is this. They had a table, and they placed upon the table all of his writings And they said, Luther, we have two questions for you. Question number one, are these your writings? Question number two, will you recant? Will you say that what you have written is false? Luther is so scared he can barely speak. He is almost inaudible. He asks for a day to think about it. 
He stalls. They say, okay. Comes back the next day. He looks at his writings, and they ask him, Luther, two questions. Are these your writings? Will you recant? Luther says, look, there's a lot here. (laughs) Um, Some of it, maybe I, I should have worded differently, but but some of it, we all in this room agree with. That don't you? I mean, there's some there's some biblical things in here that there's all of us in this room would, would say are true. And they said, Luther, are these your writings? Will you recant? And then Luther said these words, his famous declaration. He said this: Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by evident reason, for I put my faith neither in popes nor councils alone, since it is established that they have erred again and again and contradicted one another, I am bound by the scriptural evidence adduced by me, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not, recant anything. Here I stand, so help me God. Amen. And thus began the Protestant Reformation. Or perhaps more accurately, thus continued the Protestant Reformation. At a moment in time, Luther was confronted with the decision, where, were, where will your ultimate authority lie? Are you going to trust in, in councils and, and in people and in man, or are you going to trust in the Word of God? There came a, a point in his life where Luther was forced to make that determination. This morning, as we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and talking about this concept of, of sola scriptura, that the phrase which means scripture alone, that came out of this time of the Reformation, I, my purpose in studying this text and talking about its implications is that each of us would have a sense of where our ultimate authority is. And not only where our ultimate authority is, but but what it looks like practically for us to say that that Scripture is our ultimate authority. If we're looking for a central idea of everything that I believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is saying, I would quote a man named Wayne Grudem as he talks about the authority of God's Word. I, I think this is a great statement for our central idea this morning. The statement is this. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words. And therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God. Let me say that again. To say that Scripture is God's word and that it's authoritative is to say that all the words in Scripture are God's words. And therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Let's first look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's look at verses 16 and 17. And let's talk about a biblical understanding of of sola scriptura. And as we look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, we're going to look at three things about Scripture's authority. Before we do that, kind of remember what's going on here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. At the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is talking to his young pastor friend Timothy, and he says, look, Timothy, understand 
that in the last days, there's going to be times of difficulty. And then he talks about false teachers and these things that these false teachers are going to do. And he talks about these characteristics of false teachers. And then he comes to to verse 10 and says, look, Timothy, I I want you to be different. There's these false teachers who are going to be living these types of lives and and falling after this this self-indulgent lifestyle. Don't do that. Instead, Timothy, he says in verse 10, you have, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. So, two lifestyles here. The lifestyle of the false teacher is a self-indulgent lifestyle, uh, seeking his, his own pleasure. The lifestyle of a, of a man of God is, is a life of difficulty and pain and, and suffering for the glory of God. Two pathways. And then Paul says, look, Timothy, I'm, I'm confident that you're going to go the right way. Here's why. He says, he says, as for you, verse 14, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood, listen to this, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the nature of Scripture and its authority. We see three things that Paul says here about Scripture's authority that give, a, that give him confidence that Timothy is going to continue on the right path. The first thing he talks about is the extent of Scripture's authority. The extent of Scripture's authority. And what does he say? He says, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. What's the extent of Scripture's authority? Well, it includes all of it. Now, when he's talking to Timothy here, he's talking specifically about Old Testament revelation. But as we see in Second Peter, and as we see uh, Paul describe uh, Scripture's New Testament writings, we see Peter talk about Paul's writings, we refer to them as Scripture. And so what I believe we see in the testimony of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that all Scripture is authoritative. So from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, all of Scripture is authoritative. That's the extent of Scripture's authority. Now, what about... Secondly, the source of Scripture's authority. Look what he says here. All Scripture is what? It's, it's breathed out. It's God-breathed. It's inspired by God. But what that means is this. The words that we find in Scripture are God's words. It's not as though God looked at some writings and said, Oh, that's really good. I like that. Let's put that in there. Or I approve of these words. But God sovereignly directed his prophets and apostles as they wrote Scripture so that not only do we see the, the personalities and the circumstances of the individual writers in the text, we can be confident that those words are the very words of God as well. And so the, the source of authority for Scripture is that the, it comes from God. It's, it's God-breathed. It's, it, these are his words. We also see God's breath described in Scripture as this, as this life-giving force. Psalm 33, 6 says, by the, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Genesis 2, 7 talks about how God breathed into man the breath of life. God's words, anything that, that comes from the breath of God is authoritative because it comes from him. He is the source of it. That's why in Hebrews 4.12, the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts 
and intentions of the heart. It's a supernatural process by which God has given us his holy word. So you have the extent of Scripture's authority. It applies to all of the Bible. The source of Scripture's authority is that it comes from God. Now, thirdly, what's the purpose of Scripture's authority? Why has God given us an authoritative text? Why you have the last part of verse 16 and verse 17. Now, when I was in seminary, I was a first-semester seminary student and took a systematic theology class where we talked about the nature of Scripture. So I went to the bookstore, and I, uh, you know, we had no kids, so we had uh, money. And I went, and I I purchased all these systematic theology books, and and I I checked some out from the the library at at the Dallas Theological Seminary, where I I spent the first part of my seminary career. And uh, and I, I looked in all of these systematic theology books, and I went to the index where it said 2 Timothy 3, and I found the pages. And what I found is this. Every systematic theology book that I looked at dealt extensively with 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first part of verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, or all Scripture is inspired by God. I mean, it was chapter after chapter of what it means to have an inspired text, what it means concerning the authority, what it means to have an inerrant text, an infallible text. I mean, it was chapter after chapter. You know what I found, though? Only one systematic theology book, out of all the books I researched, only one dealt with the last half of verse 16 and verse 17. Why has God given us an authoritative text? So it's great to know that it's, it's from God. It's great to know that it encompasses all of Scripture. But if you know that, that God has given you an authoritative word and then nothing ever happens of it, you don't, you don't understand the, the purpose of it, practically it's useless to you. Look at what Paul says concerning the purpose of an authoritative text. He's given this, and it's profitable, last part of verse 16, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's say that you wanted to learn how to swim. You said, I I would like to be a swimmer. And so what do you do? You go and you need to learn a couple things. First thing you need to learn, how to swim. Okay, what's the technique? How do you get your body to move through the water without sinking? What's the technique? How do you do it? Another thing a good teacher or a good book is going to tell you is, what are some common mistakes that a person makes while swimming? That's the second thing. Thirdly, how do you correct those mistakes? These, these common mistakes that people are going to make, how do you correct them? And then the fourth thing, how do you improve? How do you continue to, to be a, a good swimmer? What's the, the process by which you improve your swimming techniques? What do you do? What do you not do? How do you improve the wrong things, and how do you continue in the right? That's what Scripture does in our spiritual lives. What does Scripture do? It, it teaches us, hey, this is the right way to live. And then it warns us, this is the wrong way to live. Once you live the wrong way, here's how you get back on the right path. And then lastly, here's how you continue in the right path. That's what Scripture does. Why does it do that? So that we may be confident, equipped by God for every good work. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had no other verses in Scripture, all I had was 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, 
I'd be set in terms of understanding the authority of God's word. Scripture is God's word. God says to do this, do it. Not that complicated, right? Like our children sometimes uh, feel compelled to give one another advice. Okay? And our policy on children giving one another advice or instructions is this. Look, uh, take the advice or counsel that your brother or sister gives you and determine whether or not it's wise counsel and then decide whether or not to do it. And if it's wise counsel, you should do it. Now, if I give you an instruction, that's the law. Do it upon pain of discomfort, okay? Do whatever you can to, to, to follow my instruction. My word is an authoritative word. That's the same that's true in the Christian life. Look, there are going to be people that give you God, godly counsel, and, and you should see that, that counsel as, as authoritative in the sense of, hey, this is a right thing to do. But whenever God says to do something, you do it. It's not this complicated philosophical decision you needed to make. God's word says to do this, I, I do it. That would be enough for me. Let me just give you a couple other examples in Scripture of, of how this plays out. For example, you have the prophetic formula in the Old Testament. A prophet would say, thus saith the Lord, and then he would say something. It was an authoritative word. You have people just talk about in Scripture disobeying the prophets. To disobey the prophet who's speaking the word of God is, is just like disobeying God himself. Let me give you one example of that. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. The writer of Chronicles is giving us a theological reason for why Jerusalem fell. And he says this. He says, look, the, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 36 says, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, and listen, despising his words. The words of a prophet were the words of God. And therefore, to disbelieve or disobey the word of a prophet was the same as disbelieving or disobeying the word of God. Well, what does it tell us? tells us God's word is authoritative. What God's word says for me to do is what I do. It is my ultimate authority, and so I am obedient to it. All scripture breathed out by God, the extent of scripture's authority, all of it, the source of scripture's authority, it's from God himself. The purpose of God's authority is to tell me how to live, and so I do it. I want to talk a little bit about the application of this, and I want to be very careful as I do so, because there are other groups that would uh, differ from us in our understanding of, of sola scriptura, of, of scripture alone being our ultimate authority. And I have um, people whom I, I love very dearly, and I'm sure you do as well, who hold to a, a different understanding of the authority of God's word. And though I love them, I feel that they are deeply, deeply wrong on this issue, dangerously wrong on this issue. For example, this last week I was 
at a lunch, and I was sitting at a table with a, a Roman Catholic priest and a, a pastor from a, a mainline liberal church. And the three of us had radically different understandings of what the authority of God's word meant. For example, the Roman Catholic priest had, had a different understanding of the authority of God's word. In fact, I, I talked to him and said, hey, uh, this Sunday uh, I'm preaching on sola scriptura. I'm talking about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I, and I need a good sermon illustration. Will you tell me something? No, I'm just kidding. I didn't, I didn't say that. I, I said, look, I, I want to be fair. You know, I want to make sure I, I accurately understand what your church teaches. I've read some things this week, that I know, I know, and I'm, you know, we're referencing back the, the Protestant Reformation. I want to make sure that I'm fair with, with your position. He said this, well, this is what our, he says, we've just finished a, a, I think a 13 or 16 week series that we televised on, on why we believe that the doctrine of sola scriptura is, is wrong. Okay. He said, well, this is what we believe. We believe that scripture is our central authority. And yet, uh, it must be interpreted in light of the magisterium, in light of the official teaching of the Catholic Church. And this official teaching of the Catholic Church cannot contradict, it cannot contradict uh, sacred tradition. Sacred tradition. So you have Scripture at your, as your central authority, but then you have this sacred tradition and the magisterium, the, the teachers of the church tell you how those those two things, sacred tradition and and the and scripture, line up with one another. And so I said, "All right, uh, I, I pre- and I, I really did. I appreciate that. Now, do you feel that the two have ever contradicted?" That's what happened with Martin Luther, right? There came this point in time where he said, "Look, tradition and scripture are contradicting one another. I've got to fall on the side of scripture." And and uh, the, the father said, um, "No, I, I don't believe there's ever been a point where tradition." Sacred tradition is interpreted by the magisterium, and Holy Scripture contradict one another. And very lovingly, I have to say, I strongly disagree with that. You know, the Council of Trent, following the Reformation, has condemned me to hell. There are anathemas pronounced against me by the Council of Trent. They say, look, if a person believes that a person is, is justified by, by faith alone, that person be anathema, condemned to hell. Now, I don't believe that the average Roman Catholic thinks about the Council of Trent, but the official teaching of the church says that. The official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church says about indulgences that it condemns with anathema those who hold that indulgences are useless or that the church does not have the power to grant them. I, I disagree with that. I believe that's a wrong, dangerous doctrine, contrary to the word of God. Now, let's not let Protestants off the hook either, right? Also at the table with me was a mainline liberal Protestant pastor, very nice man as well, and yet his church holds to an understanding of Scripture that doesn't believe it's authoritative. It doesn't believe that all Scripture is authoritative. They believe that Scripture is is errant. It has mistakes in it. Both those understandings of the Word of God fall short of what the biblical understanding of the sufficiency of God's Word, the authority of God's Word, means. Let me say this. The point point to get from this is not that, wow, Daniel disagrees with everybody. Um, The point is this. It's not that we're 
as people who hold the sufficiency of God's word, it's not that we're anti-anything in the sense of, of just being against things. It's that the Reformation, the principles of the Reformation, are still needed. We still must call ourselves and other people who would name the name of Christ to the central authority of God's word. And that principle of the authority of God's word is a principle that still must be boldly proclaimed today. We call the church universal to submit to God's word as authoritative in their life. Now let's talk about some implications, and you have notes in your bulletin there, and and hopefully this will be helpful as we think rightly about what Scripture teaches concerning the authority of God's Word. The first thing is this. A sola scriptura, saying Scripture alone is, is our ultimate authority, does not mean that we just decide for ourselves what we're going to believe, what we want to believe. Sola scriptura does mean that we are responsible to make sure that we follow teaching that is in agreement with Scripture. So, for example, oftentimes people say, well, well, sola scriptura, uh, I alone uh, decide what I want to believe. I'm kind of like a little mini-pope, and I, I make declarations, and I'm going to decide what I do, and I, I don't want to be, believe. That's not what Scripture tells us, right? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 again. Remember what Paul's telling Timothy here. He's saying, look, I'm confident that you're going to do the right thing because of what you've, you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Uh, Paul has this confidence that, that Timothy has learned rightly the things that he needs to learn. And so Timothy isn't deciding for himself what he wants to believe. He's falling underneath the authority of those who have taught him God's word. So it doesn't mean that we're all these individualists uh, deciding what we want to believe. Martin Luther said that if we all did that, we'd all be deciding our own way to go to hell. Instead, we're falling underneath Instead, we're falling underneath others' teachings, but we're responsible to make sure that we follow teaching that is in agreement with Scripture. Again, think about the context in which 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is written. There are people in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that are in positions of authority and are doing terrible, terrible things. And a person who follows along, a person who's teaching them terrible things, is at some point responsible for, what, for the advice that they're following, the teaching that they're following. So Paul is telling Timothy, look, Timothy, you can either follow these, these false teachers or you can follow me. And a person that follows after a false teacher at some point becomes culpable for following that false teaching. And I liken it kind of to investing, okay? A person like me uh, has no business simply just deciding what to invest in, okay? I need, I need to research and I need to, to follow uh, people who are wiser than me when it comes to the issue of investing. Yet at the same time, as I follow others' authority and, and instruction in that area, at some point I become culpable for what I'm investing in. And so if, my, uh, if I, I call a financial advisor and the financial advisor says, uh, Daniel, uh, parachute pants are coming back, okay? Uh, you need to sink your life savings into to parachute pants, okay? Uh, and I'll say, no, I can't touch that. I, I don't want to in, invest in that. That doesn't seem like a very good idea uh, to me. Uh, at some point, we become culpable for the authority that we follow. And so sola scripture doesn't mean we just decide for ourselves willy-nilly, what am I going to believe? It means we come underneath the authority of God's word and make sure that the teaching that we're following is in agreement with scripture the application to this is, is what? As you are taught things, uh, compare. You know, is this in agreement with God's word? 
Secondly, sola scriptura does not mean that we ignore or disparage church history. Sola scriptura does mean that we see tradition as a tool to help us better understand scripture. So what I'm saying here is that that we as as Protestants shouldn't be anti-tradition or anti-church history. Instead, we should realize the truth of Proverbs 11.14. Proverbs 11.14 tells us that in, in many counselors there is wisdom. And so as we look at church history and and see that the writings of those who've gone before us, our understanding of Scripture should be deepened and understood more fully. Here's what a guy named Dr. Hannah writes in a book called Our Legacy. He says this, and I think he is exactly right. He says, A Christianity separated from historical credibility is not the biblical faith. A knowledge of the past keeps the church from confusing the merely contemporary with the enduringly relevant. It distinguishes the transient from the permanent. In so doing, it spares the church from diversions. A knowledge of the past bequeaths a stability and confidence in a world where flamboyant voices lend credibility to spurious ideas promising success. In essence, an understanding of church history brings to the church an arsenal of enduring insights. We, helps us struggle, it helps us as we struggle to preserve the church today from opponents both within and without. That's exactly right. As we read the church fathers and, and, and pastors and, and teachers who have gone before us, we gain a, a valuable insight into to Scripture. We don't arrogantly stand and say, well, I know everything there is to know about God's Where We say, look, I'm going to listen to other people who have gone before me. And sometimes a person who is removed from our own culture and the blinders of, the, of living in North America in 2009, a person who lived several hundred years ago or a thousand years ago can, can offer insights into the text that, that we can't see for ourselves. This last week, I was at dinner, and my four-year-old looked very intently at me. He said, son, you're, you're making me uncomfortable. Uh, he said, Daddy, did you know that you have a, a forest in your ears? He said, uh, no, I was unaware of that. Uh, did you know that you're not getting dessert tonight? <laughs> well, right, my child can see things, and a child will tell you things that you couldn't see on your own, okay? And so looking at the, the church fathers, the church fathers can tell us about the, the hair in unwanted places uh, that, that we need to, to get rid of and purge. The application, I think, to this is, is this, uh, this idea that, Sola Scripture does not mean we ignore or disparage church history. Now, I, I say this very carefully. We need to beware of, of novel ideas. <laughs> Whenever someone presents a book and says, look, this book finally contains the, the secret to the Christian life, be a little skeptical. <laughs> really, after 2,000 years of church history, you figured it out. Sola Scripture says, look, the insights of the people of faith who have gone before us can help us understand rightly how to interpret and apply Scripture in our lives. And they're going to, to help us see things that we may have never thought of otherwise. Thirdly, sola scriptura does not mean that the church, the, sola scriptura does not mean Scripture is the only authority in our life. I'll explain that in just a moment. Sola scriptura does mean that it is our ultimate and it's only an errant authority. Now, I, I know some of these overlap with one another, but what, what I'm saying is this. 
sola scriptura doesn't mean, look, I have no authority in my life, okay? I am a Protestant. I hold a sola scriptura, so don't you be telling me what to do, okay? That's not what this doctrine is, is, is telling us. In fact, what have we been seeing in the book of Ephesians? God sovereignly places authority in our life. We've talked about the, the authority in a family. We've talked about the authority between an employer and an employee, slaves and masters. We all have authority in our life. And so sola scriptura doesn't mean we just kind of thumb our nose at all authority and say, I, you know, I'm just going to stand under the word of God. God's word calls us to submit. But what it does mean is this, that all other authorities in our life fall underneath the authority of God's word. And so when authorities conflict with one another, we trust in Scripture. Last week as I was uh, teaching in uh, Kent Cloder's Sunday school class about our, our church and our position on uh, how, we're, how we're going to begin this, this new uh, phase of our church is, and have elders and just kind of talking through that and, and you know, how we're planning on implementing it, a uh, sweet, sweet friend came up and said, uh, she said, Daniel, uh, just want to let you know we, tr- we trust you. And I said, don't, okay? And she was a little taken aback, like, oh, is there some dark secret in his life that I shouldn't be trusting? I said, oh, let me reword that. <laughs> Th- thank you for encouraging me and trusting. But what I'm saying is this, take what I'm presenting and compare it to God's word, right? Make sure that the things that, that we've worked through are, are, are right. And, that, and I don't believe that I, I would intentionally deceive someone or lead them the wrong way. But, but all authority is, is, is fallible except the authority found in God's word. And so we, as church leaders, as we present ideas, the reason we seek the, the input of other people in the church is because we believe the priesthood of all believers that, that all have the ability to contribute and help us see our blind spots. And so sola scriptura doesn't mean that scripture is my only authority. It just means that it's my ultimate and only inerrant authority. It's not going to lead me astray. Fourthly, fourthly sola scriptura does not mean that our interpretation of scripture is infallible. Sola Scriptura does mean that we humbly submit ourselves to the text. Sola Scriptura does not mean that our interpretation of Scripture is always infallible. There are going to be mistakes that we make sometimes as we attempt to apply and understand Scripture. Sometimes these, these mistakes are going to be intentional. Some, Second Peter talks about how some people twist, twist Paul's words and with malicious intent. Sometimes our, our twisting of Scripture is going to be accidental. So it doesn't mean that we're, when we say sola scriptura, it doesn't mean that we're always going to interpret Scripture rightly. But what it does mean is that we're going to humbly submit ourselves to the text. Keep your finger there in Second Timothy and, and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. This is a, these are a great couple verses just to meditate on as you think about your responsibility before a holy God who has given us his word. Isaiah chapter 66. It says this, notice again the prophetic formula, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and, and what is the place of my rest? He's talking about, look, I, I'm an expansive God. Heaven's like my throne. Earth is simply my footstool. Are you really going to build a temple and think that I, I can be contained within it? Verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. We see in verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, the ultimate 
otherness of God. He stands far above the expanse of heaven. There's nothing we can do to to obtain him in and of ourselves. And so he he is a majestic, great, powerful God. But look at the last half of verse 2. But this is the one, you'd almost say this is the speck, the piece of dirt to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I am a God who who spans the expanse of heaven. And yet, to the person who rightly recognizes their place in the universe and is contrite in their spirit, and when they come to my word, have a holy fear and tremble at it, I'll look to them. I'll be with them. Sola Scriptura means that we are people who humbly come to the text. And as God tells us what to do, there's a little bit of a tremble because it frightens us to think about being disobedient to the text. talking to a friend Wednesday. He told me about some things he'd been reading in Scripture. He said, look, there's, there's, we're talking about a specific doctrine. He said, look, I've always heard this thing about this doctrine, but I'm not seeing it in the text. As I'm reading my Bible, it's not clear to me. He said, I'm having to rethink that. I said, that's absolutely right. It wasn't a major point of, of church doctrine, but, but he said, look, I'm scared of believing and holding to something that's contrary to what God's word says. Sola Scriptura doesn't mean I say my interpretation of Scripture is always right, you're always wrong, and my purpose in talking to you is to win an argument. It means this, I, I'm fearful about going against God's word, and so I'm humbly submitting myself to the text. Goal is not the application of this. My, my goal in talking to people about doctrine and scripture is not to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong, but our goal is to come to the text and say, God, I am a great sinner. I am in need of a great Savior. God, as I place my faith in Jesus Christ, tell me how to live. Fifthly, fifthly, sola scriptura does not mean that we become intellectually stagnant. It does mean that we competently wrestle with the text in order to understand and apply it to any situation. So, in other words, what we're saying is we don't just turn off our brains and say, well, whatever, you know, I'm just going to, 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 to turn off our and not even wrestle intellectually with, with what I believe. No, that's not sola scriptura. Instead, I approach scripture with confidence. And I say, I'm confident that Second Peter chapter 1 is, is true when, when it tells us that God has, has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I'm, I'm confident that that's true. And so I'm, I'm confident that as I come to the text, I have everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. As I search Scripture, I will know rightly how to live. Sixthly, sixthly, it means this. Or first, it does not mean this. Sola Scriptura, number six, does not mean we are legalistically enslaved to the text. Sola Scriptura does mean 
that we are required to only believe and do what Scripture tells us to do in terms of our spiritual health. So some people say, well, you know, sola scriptura, you're these slaves to the text. There's, there's no joy there. It's just a bunch of oppressive rules that kind of weigh you down. And so you have this, this big Bible on your back, and you kind of walk through life. Sola scriptura, sola scriptura. Oh. That's not what it means. Three things here about what it does mean. First of all, there's life in the Word, not oppression. 1 John 5, 3 says this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And what? His commandments aren't burdensome. God's Word is, is life and it's joy and it's, it's, it's a sign of His love for us that He gives it to us. Sola Scriptura doesn't mean legalistic oppression. It means life and love. It also means, it also means that we're not required. Secondly, it means that we're not required to do things that aren't found in the Bible. If I want to know how to rightly live my, my Christian life, remember 2 Timothy 3.16, he's given us everything we, or he says that he's, he's given us those things that, that teach us what's right, that tell us what's wrong, how to get back on the right path, and then that training in righteousness continue in the right path. There's nothing that I'm required to do for my spiritual health that isn't found in God's word. That's an amazingly freeing thing. And so I don't have to do indulgences. I don't have to say a, a certain ritualistic prayer. There's nothing that you can tell me to do that if I, I can't find in Scripture, I have to do. That's life. That's freedom. That's joy. It also means, it also means that we don't have to wade into minutia, I think. Sola Scriptura means that we're required to, do, to only believe what, and do what Scripture tells us to do. And I think a corollary of that is, is we focus on the big things in Scripture, right? And whenever Scripture has this a minor point, it's important for us to wrestle it. All words are authoritative, but, but if Scripture doesn't exactly describe and prescribe what to do in that area, we don't have to, we don't, we don't have to, uh, to focus on it more than Scripture does. And sometimes Paul talks about Timothy, to Timothy about people that focus on genealogies and, and just getting some weird speculations. We don't have to do that. I was talking with another good friend this, this week about uh, a, a passage in the book of Acts that talks about when they, they cast lots to decide who would be the, the next apostle to replace Judas. And he said, so what does that mean? I said, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I know what it meant. I know what they were doing, but I'm not exactly sure about the application for us today. But I do know this. I said, Clearly, in Scripture, I'm nowhere commanded to cast lots. Now, if a person wants to flip a coin to make a decision, they've, they've, they're not in violation of any other Scriptures, you know, hey, flip away, you know. But I would say this, don't go two out of three, because then you're denying God's providence. God can, God can do it with just one flip of the coin. Uh, no, the point is, I don't have to go beyond what Scripture's written. I don't have to wade into minutia. I give this to you as an application for this week. This week, I'd encourage you to read through Psalm 119. And every day, just write down three things that make the psalmist really pumped about the Word of God. Just write three things. Why does he, what's, what's his passion with, with God's Word? Why does he like it so much? Just spend a few minutes Write down three things a day. You'll see, look, Scripture does not, sola scriptura, the authority of God's word does not mean some legalistic 
enslavement to a text. It means joy and life and peace. Lastly, sola scriptura does not mean that every ministry of the church must be explicitly stated and, and described. Sola Scriptura does mean that the ministries we are passionate about flow from what God's Word is passionate about. We talk about this more in our our new members class, our Bethany 101. What it simply means is, look, as we talk about Sola Scriptura, we're not saying that that we're underneath the authority of God's Word and such that nothing we can do, everything we do must be explicitly described in, in God's Word, you know, the Bible doesn't mention Sunday school. But I'll tell you this. We would not do Sunday school if it didn't flow out of a passion to do the things that God, God's Word has told us to do. And so our Sunday school ministry is, is shaped around fulfilling commandments that God has given us in His Word. And again, those commandments are joy and life and peace. It's a lot in a short amount of time, I know. <laughs> encourage you to, to, to read Psalm 119 this week and, and meditate and, and apply in your own life. What, what is it going to mean as I, I make Scripture my authority? Martin Luther, Martin Luther had no intention of breaking off from the Roman Catholic Church as he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. But there came a point in time where he had to decide, where is my authority? Where is my authority? Each of us, as we decide how to live our lives, either consciously or unconsciously, are deciding where the location of our authority resides. My prayer is that we would contemplate the truths of 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And we would agree that all Scripture is God's Word in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the authoritative word that you've given us. We thank you for the ability to come in submission to it. And and Father, please help us to know how to do so. Help us to submit more readily, more quickly, to change as we contemplate who you are and what you've called us to do in your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.